Hebrews 4, verse 12 to 5, verse 10. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, you are my son, today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus's life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was hurt because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And he was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Thank you, Shalapay, for bringing that reading to us. And if you've got your Bibles open, either on your phone or in um, paper copies, please do have that in front of you as we look at this passage together. And I appreciate we've uh, been out of Hebrews for a couple of weeks now with Christmas and um, then the New Year's. So just as a bit of a a way to refresh our memories, um, the context of this letter is that the pastor writer here, who is writing to Christians with a a Christian faith from a Jewish background and heritage and and religious life, probably living in Rome, uh, the capital, uh, around probably mid Uh, 60s in the first century. So a time where things were in flux. There was persecution, there was hardship that was starting to show itself. And these Christians were facing some truly trying hardships. There was a very real and strong pressure to distance themselves from Jesus, to to turn back to their old religious way of life, or just think actually they're better off uh, making things up as they go along. And I suppose likewise, where we find ourselves living in Manchester in 2022, there's a number of pressures, aren't there, that can face us as Christians, as people who are wanting to live out our faith. And at times, if we're honest, it can feel like we question whether it's worth following Jesus. Is it worth sticking with his good news? Interestingly, The Economist, uh, the, the magazine, ran an article yesterday And it was entitled, The World's Religions Face a Post-Pandemic Reckoning. 
And this article highlighted not just uh, churches, but mosques and synagogues as well uh, in the UK, in the US, in Europe, where they were finding it harder to retain congregations. It's a reality that's facing religious faith groups. And some of the uh, proposed solutions in the article were about selling off buildings, maybe merging congregations and churches together, or finding innovative ways to make sure your ministries are right on point with culture and what people want. Unsurprisingly, um, sharing and living the gospel uh, wasn't part of the solutions in The Economist. But... It's easy, isn't it, with those sort of headlines, that sort of noise, to think we're just in decline, to think skepticism has the day, to think that adversity is all there is. And even what we've done this morning in praying and celebrating Emily and Landon's ministry is a sign that there is a different news. There are different headlines. And in fact, I just want to offer my thanks to their family. Uh, They are an answer to prayer from 2008-2009 when I established Trinity Community Church as a church plant from Platt. And we were praying, how do we engage with our Muslim friends? How do we take the gospel to people who are coming into this nation to find a home from a Muslim background? And it is amazing that the two friends they'll be working with, Michael and Susan, are close friends of ours. And that we see ministry continuing and doing that in fellowship and support with one another. So thank you guys for the work that I know you will do through God's strength. It will be awesome to hear how we continue to support and pray for you and hear what the Lord does. There is a different headline, isn't there? And that's what the pastor writing Hebrews wants us to see, is that don't hear the noise about decline, skepticism, adversity, and hardship. When that noise is there, you've got to fix your eyes and hearts on something, indeed someone. And that's the whole driving aim of this letter. Fix your eyes on who Jesus truly is. And right in the first sermon back in November, I gave this simple outline from Reverend Dr. Peter Adams. Matthew, if you can stick it up on the next slide. There it is. It's just a very simple roadmap for getting your head around this letter. This is the outline in a nutshell. God's son. Jesus is God's son. He's supreme. That's what we see in chapters 1 through to halfway through fourteen, uh, 4. Sorry. Uh, Jesus is our great high priest. This is what we will look at over the coming weeks from chapters 4 through to chapter 10. And then there's a response. That response comes out throughout the letter, but there's a section from chapter 10 through to the end, chapter 13, that really looks at application. And so today, just two points as we look at this passage. We're going to recognize and wrestle with the fact that we need help. We need, firstly, God's life-changing word. And I suppose the Bible, God's word, is one of those foundation stones, one of those aspects and arenas in which Christians have been challenged over the years, throughout centuries. Our culture isn't unique in this, but it does feel that over the last 20 years, I I don't know about you as you've um, grown in both your faith and and in connection with friends and family and just the sort of cultural noise that's out there about the Bible. It seems over the last 20 years, this has become more of an acute problem. 
as we've moved further and further away from an understanding of the Bible, it's just there in our culture or not, our heritage, so that biblical ethics, and particularly on the ethics side, when it comes to things like sexual relationships, marriage, the family, authority, um, issues like sin and repentance, uh, justice and forgiveness, these are starting to be seen as at best obscure and at worst offensive and dangerous. The leading spokesperson of New Atheism, Professor Richard Dawkins, captures this sentiment well when he writes this. To be fair, much of the Bible is not systemically evil, but just plain weird, as you would expect of a chaotically cobbled together anthology of disjointed documents, composed, revised, translated, distorted, and improved by hundreds of anonymous authors, editors, and copyists, unknown to us and mostly unknown to each other, spanning nine centuries. Wow, sounds very plausible. You can see how that chips away. Interesting, the other side of it is that many academics and very big-brained people have responded to those criticisms and yet not heard in quite the same volume. So Professor Alastair McGrath, who is also an Oxford professor and his first degree in training was in biology, has written a full response to Dawkins, which rarely gets touted whenever you hear the new atheists, point by point. Interestingly, Dr. Daniel Strange, who worked at Oak Hill College where I was trained, um, the co-author of an excellent book, a good one if you want to just have an in entry point which is serious and engaging, confident, why we can trust the Bible, that's the name of the book, confident, why we can trust the Bible, Daniel actually says, interestingly, the Bible is reassuringly unfashionable. <laughs> this is one line of argument in terms of seeing that it's a book that crosses cultures, it crosses genres and ethnic groups. It has stood the test of time. Yes, it confounds many, but it also transforms many more because the Bible is what it says it is. It's not simply a product of culture from um, our uh, machinations. It is a word from another world. It's a word from another kingdom. We can't ignore it, we can't edit it, we can certainly make fun of it and do those things, but it continues to endure and ultimately will have the final word over us. And this is the view of the pastor writing Hebrews 4. If you've got the passage open there, look at verses 12 to 14 with me. Having already encouraged these Jewish Christian readers not to harden their hearts about the promise to enter God's rest, he then gives a vivid picture of why we need to listen to God's life-changing word, because it is personal, it's powerful, and it's penetrating. Verse 12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the thoughts, sorry, it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God's word is personal. It's a foundational belief of Christianity that God speaks. We've seen that already in Hebrews. Go back to chapter one. How does it open with the Lord God who speaks, who spoke in various ways over the centuries through his messengers and ultimately, we're told, through his son, Jesus Christ. 
We've seen it in chapters one to five as the pastor knows the Old Testament scriptures are God's word to us to the extent that the pastor quotes parts of the Psalms, parts of Isaiah and says, God said that. Chapter four, verse seven, God spoke these words. Chapter two, verse 12, Jesus said this Psalm. Chapter three, verse seven, and the Holy Spirit says. It's not an error. That would be a really stupid school child error to say, oh, just God said this. It, the, the doctrine there is that God speaks through humans and that is his word. And this continues with the New Testament. So in chapter two, verse one, the writer says, we must pay careful attention to what we've heard. Verse three, this salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles by the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Can you see again the flow there? That the message of salvation spoken by Jesus was passed on by the apostles who had seen and heard him and approved authentic by gifts of the Holy Spirit. That is God speaking. That message is inspired. It's authoritative. It is passed on, unchanged. The phenomenal truth is that God's word is living and active, which means that when we engage with the scriptures, the Old Testament, the New Testament, when we read it, when we listen to it, when we think about it, when we sing it, when we meet, we are meeting with and hearing from God. The theologian John Frame puts it like this, when we encounter the word of God, we encounter God. His word, indeed, is his personal presence. Wherever God's word is spoken, read, or heard, God himself is there. You see, this is our view of scripture here at Grace Church Manchester. That's why it's so important to all we do. And you know, that is why I'm convinced that we will always have a battlefield on the Bible. Because we are actually saying that's where you meet God. Yes, you'll experience him in lots of different ways. You meet him as we meet as community. When we have Lord's Supper, there's the Holy Spirit comes and, and works on us. But if we want to hear him, if we want to be met by him, we meet him in scripture. It's a miracle. And so, of course, people want to chip away from that, dilute it, and ignore it. I'm currently making slow progress through Barack Obama's autobiography. It's a very insightful read. It's about 800 pages long as well, so I'm a slow reader. I've managed about 150 in 10 months. <laughs> he shares a lot about his upbringing, um, his values, his key experiences, the people that have impacted him. It's full of funny anecdotes as well that show he's a normal guy, that he, he has faults and weaknesses just like the rest of us. But even though I've read this book, or reading it, shall I say, I can't say I've met Barack Obama or that he knows me. However, the miraculous gift of the Bible is that God the Father, the Son and Spirit forever alive meets us by his spirit when we open up the Bible. It is a book that knows us and speaks to us in our situations, just as it did for these Jewish Christians in the mid-60s AD. As Jesus said, Hear this promise, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. So let's listen carefully 
because God's word is personal. It's a personal word for us. And God's word is powerful. It is active. Did you see that word there in verse 12, active? In the Greek, it's where we get our word energy from. One Bible scholar put it like this. God's word doesn't just say things. It does things. It is busy working, changing, building, convicting, encouraging, exposing, rebuking, giving light and wisdom, carving out a path for our lives. It is sufficient, you see. It is sufficient for everything we need in life to live a life in step with God that pleases God. For a life that is secure in his love. For a life that is filled with purpose that satisfies our deepest longings. God's word is powerful. But God's word is uncomfortable. God's word is penetrating word. You can't get away from it. It's there, isn't it, in verse 13. It exposes us. Sharper than any double-edged sword, it penetrates even dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Here's the scary bit. Everything is uncovered. God's word is created to cut. It's designed to get through the hardest thing on earth. I'm not talking about diamonds, the human heart. That's where Jesus landed, Mark 7. He said, that's the root of the problem. So what's going on inside, in the control center of your very being? Our hearts are hardened by sinful pride. That instinctive, I'm right attitude. No doubt, even over Christmas and New Year, over this holiday period, I bet each one of us have experienced both the pain caused by someone else's hard heart as well as the damage we've caused to others because of our own. Well, God's word penetrates through all that. He cuts through our outside show. He cuts through the mask that we wear to get deep into our being. This week, I asked a friend. Actually, it'll be the friend who's working with Landon on the Farsi outreach, Michael, um, who's a pathologist, about the knives he uses at work. Interesting WhatsApp conversation. He sent me four pictures of different knives. There's the scalpel, obviously, for dissection. There's the eight-inch flat knife that he said he uses for brain and major organs. There's a trimming knife for getting samples. But in his words, and he even gave me the spec, the PM40 is the sword of the mortuary. <laughs> I've wielded it over 4,000 times, and it's never let me down. There's a guy who knows his tools. Now, what's fascinating about the, the knife ranges of surgeons and pathologists is that when we think about those instruments, they're precision, aren't they? They've got a specific purpose. They're not about hacking away or damaging. They're used ultimately to heal people for getting to the cause of an illness, for fixing it. And this is a good picture of what God's word is like when it's at work. God's word wounds us to heal us. God's word wounds to heal. Now, tragically, I don't know if you heard in the news, this just blew me away. In 2021, last year, 30 teenage boys were killed just in London by knives. And interestingly, the majority are from uh, 
are black teenage boys. What is going on? 30 killed by knives. And that doesn't even include the injuries and the attacks and various other things and different cities where knives have been used in violent crime. You see, a gang member or a terrorist will use a knife to harm and destroy. A surgeon uses a knife to heal. The wonderful news is that God uses the Bible not only to uncover what we're truly like, but also to recover, to heal us from the inside. God does surgery on our soul, preventing us from drifting away from his love, from the salvation he's given us. That's why it's so important. That's why, again, that regular personal Bible reading and prayer have always been an essential part of the Christian life. And it's amazing how many resources we have to help us. I know in the start of January, there's always that sort of hopefully reassessing. What are we doing in our devotional life? Here are a few suggestions. We'll just put the websites up. These are things that I've been using at different points that I found helpful. So you've got the Read the Scripture app which is a brilliant app, it's in partnership with the Bible Project, it takes you through the whole Bible, but you can watch little videos, you're given about four chapters to read, but there's some great resources around it that just start helping us understand the flow of this book. That actually answer the question, I wonder Richard Dawkins, if you did try this app, could you at least see it's not so chaotic as you think it might be? There is a unified story here that is a miracle in itself given how much how many authors have compiled it over so many centuries? Maybe there's a God behind it speaking through it. There's also the Nicky Gumbel and um, Pippa Gumbel's Bible in One Year, uh, which, again, is a, a really helpful resource and has been awesome in prisons, particularly in prison ministry. So many people serving sentences have found it a phenomenal resource for them as they've read God's word and found life there. And then finally, if you want to do something of taking a scripture verse and really letting that sink in and memorize it, I can't highlight the fighter verses enough. It is a brilliant resource, fighterverses.com. But whatever you do, we're faced with a crossroads, aren't we? Because if we felt the scalpel of God's word in our spirit, opening up to his gaze, what will we do now? That's the question. Will we run for cover Will we close the Bible, or will we find other things to mask that problem, just carry on as best we can? You see, what happens next depends on whether you trust the surgeon, doesn't it? If you trust Jesus, that means you'll willingly open your heart to his work. And that's why this next section, in chapter 4, verses 14 through to 5, 10, is so important because it focuses us on the person. It focuses us on the great high priest and the saving work he has done for us. So we need God's life-changing word. But as we do that, we need that because we need Jesus' sympathetic, life-saving high priest. Now, in our culture, independence, self-reliance, do-it-yourself mentality, it's embedded into the way we live, isn't it? And however, the Beatles of all bands, showed us something else. They, they showed us that that mindset doesn't always work out, especially in their song, Help. Do you know the intro to that? I'm not a great big Beatles fan, but it's one that's stuck in my mind. You can't ignore it. Help, I need somebody. Help, not just anybody. Help, you know I need someone. 
help four times is brilliant. It's just so honest. Have you felt like that too? Have you felt that need where you feel so overwhelmed out of your depth that, and the solution feels just out of reach? You need someone else to get alongside you, to be alongside. Helplessness, you see, is part of being human. We're created to get by with a little help from our friends and also a little bit more. Help from beyond. Help from our creator. And especially when we're exposed by God, by his word, we need help, don't we? And the good news is God hasn't left us on our own. The father isn't distant and uncaring. He is here for us. And in this section, chapter 4 um, through to chapter five, ten. We're given this wonderful insight into the way the Father and the Son work. You see, Jesus is the perfect intercessor. He's the perfect mediator. He's the one who is the perfect high priest who brings us mercy and grace. And there are several themes in these verses which we'll keep coming back to over the next few weeks. Over chapter 7 through to 10, we're going to look at what this priesthood means. And it will take us to some unfamiliar territory, maybe, but it will take us deep so we get to appreciate Jesus' work even more. And so in the next couple of minutes, we're not going to cover everything, but I wanted to draw out two aspects from this section. We need to remember that the priesthood and the sacrificial system of the Old Testament is God's gift for his people Israel at that time. It was a gift, a means of forgiveness and sacrifice and fellowship for God's people. They relied on it because it was his mercy rather than their attempts to justify themselves to God. And as the pastor starts building this comparison between Jesus and the earthly priests, he starts by looking at Aaron. In chapter 5, verse 1. This is who's in focus here. So we can see some similarities and differences. First, that the Old Testament priests were appointed by God, and so was Jesus. Old Testament priests didn't volunteer. Verse 1, every high priest is selected from among the people in matters related to God to, in, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. They're appointed. It's God who does the selecting. Aaron was chosen to go into the tent of meeting when they lived in the desert. In in Leviticus 16, we read that that was a a a once-a-year meeting where he went in to the holiest place on the Day of Atonement, sprinkling blood on the Ark of the Covenant as a way of mediating forgiveness, as a sign of God's forgiveness for all the unintentional sins that the people had committed. Now, by the first century, the Jewish uh, high priests were appointed by either Roman rulers or popular votes. And in the same way as Aaron, Jesus, in chapter 5, verse 5, is appointed and called by the Father, not by a vote. He's there to do the ultimate work of a high priest. You see, Jesus, we're told, represented he prayed for, he finally offered the perfect sacrifice of his own blood to forgive our sin. Earthly high priests could go through a curtain in the tent of meeting or the temple's holiest place. Some human priesthood is limited and bound to this world. It doesn't go far enough. It doesn't last long enough. And yet, Jesus, we're told, went through the heavens right into God's throne room, into his presence. Chapter 4, verse 14. 
he goes further. His work goes as far as necessary because his priesthood is tied to his unique identity as the divine son. And we read there in chapter 5, verses 5 to 6, quoting Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, he alone is at the Father's right hand. He is the one full of authority. And because his priesthood is forever, it never ceases. That makes sense, doesn't it? He holds us before the Father forever. Our future is as secure as his future because he is safe in heaven and therefore we are safe in him. And then secondly, the Old Testament priests, we're told, are empathetic. That is, they shared the same struggles. We, we can read that there in uh, verse 2 and 3. They were imperfect. They shared the same weaknesses as ordinary people. But they still, therefore, had the same sin problem as everyone else. And profoundly, here's a big difference. We're told there in verses 8 to 9, as well as verse 15, yes, Jesus is empathetic, he's sympathetic, he knows and he gets alongside, but even better, he's perfect in verses 8 to 9. You see, Jesus did not shield himself from the fallenness of the world. He was despised and rejected. He experienced everything in life that is dark and difficult, from physical suffering to relational problems. He felt emotions. He offered up, we're told in verse 7, offering up prayers and petitions, fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him. That's full of emotion, isn't it? That's full of truth. And this appears to be a description of the prayer time on the night he was arrested in Gethsemane. But throughout his life, his prayers were heartfelt. They were earnest. They were compassionate. They were tear-filled when he was at Lazarus's tomb. And on the cross, not only did he face the scorn and anger of people, but he also took God the Father's anger at our sin. Now, throughout it all, Jesus consistently submitted himself to his Father's will. And this is what is meant when we read there that Jesus was learning obedience from what he suffered. Verses 8 and 9, learning obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal life for all who obey him. You see, it wasn't that Jesus lacked a godly character, but he needed the full experience of living a perfect human life, of obeying the Father in everything without sin. How else would he represent us? As Jesus grew in wisdom and stature, we're told that in Luke's gospel throughout his childhood, then those temptations were probably more difficult and more challenging to deal with. As he obeyed the Father in each trial, he learned obedience. His lifelong perfect obedience provides the grounds for eternal salvation. And his perfection is counted to us as our perfection. That's the gift for all who believe and obey. So practically, just on this, we have a priest who is eternal, a priest who doesn't need to offer a sacrifice for their sin in Jesus because he's perfect, a priest who is forever so we're secure, and a priest who's been tempted beyond anything we have 
so that we can be strengthened and find comfort and not be crushed. He's not looking down his nose going, oh, I can't be done with you lot. Just pull your socks up. He's been there and walks with us. So what does that mean when we're going through these doubts, these trials, these temptations? It's fix your head and heart on that great high priest who holds us firmly. It's not wrong to be tempted, but sin comes when we indulge the temptation, when we chase it, when we give in, when we persist in it. But wonderfully, Jesus is the world's most understanding and sympathetic person and saviour. Do you believe that? If you're a child of God, then Christ doesn't see your sin as a reason to condemn you, but as a reason you have a reason for him to have compassion on you. Don't let your sin be a weight on your mind that stops you from coming to God. Hear Jesus, plead your case. He is pleading your case. Know the Father's verdict is not guilty. You're forgiven and loved. Again, as Tim Chester, uh, the commentator, puts it, the face of Christ doesn't tighten in a grimace when you sin. Instead, his eyes fill with tears. In Christ's heart sinks when we keep our distance. His heart sinks when we keep our distance. When we come in our miserable state, he deals gently with us. This is the good news here when we're talking about needing a priest. Therefore, as we're changed by God's life-changing active word, as we fix our eyes on Jesus, our great high priest, let us deal gently and lovingly with each other. Doesn't that make sense? This forms our community, doesn't it? It shows what it means to be believers who follow Jesus. Let us keep urging one another to, with that powerful promise of verse 16, to, to hold on to verse 16 confidently run to God. Chapter 4, verse 16. If there was a verse you get memorized over the next couple of months, take hold of 4.16. Run to God. Approach God's throne. What a wonderful picture of holiness, of intimacy, of majesty. For the unrepentant, the throne is a fearful reality, but it is a throne of judgment, but that doesn't have to be the way. It is the throne of mercy and grace. For the children of God who believe, it has always, always been a throne of grace. It is our help in our times of need, hourly, daily, for the whole of life, until we see him face to face. This is why we need this great high priest. The Father is for us, and the Son is with us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. You are a God who has given us everything we need for life with you here, with life for eternity with Christ. Lord, whatever we're carrying today individually, may we know we have no reason to run from Jesus, but to run to him. And I pray, Father, that your peace, the perfect work of Jesus Christ, would guard our hearts and minds, each one of us, that we would take hold of this invitation to come to your throne of grace, 
with confidence to to receive mercy and grace because you are a God of love and who helps his children. Amen.